out-of-school time programs, called OST programs for short, offer spaces for young people to develop interests, skills, and social connections beyond the classroom, such as during the summer or after school. Despite years of research on the benefits of OST programs and experiences, recent studies have raised concerns about access to quality programming for youth from low-income families and youth from marginalized communities. To explore barriers to participation in programs and the experiences of young people who participate in them, the Wallace Foundation commissioned a team of education scholars to conduct a literature review and interview OST experts. I'm Ben Kirshner, one of the members of that team and a professor of learning sciences and human development at the University of Colorado Boulder. Our team interviewed 58 experts in OST research, policy, and practice, and we conducted seven focus groups with an additional sample of 35 OST professionals devoted to specific topics and youth populations. You can read the findings in a brief on Wallace's website at www.wallacefoundation.org. The brief is called From Access to Equity, Making Out-of-School Time Spaces Meaningful for Teens from Marginalized Communities. The researchers use the term marginalized as an umbrella term to acknowledge how systems of oppression impact minoritized children and youth, young people from low-income households and high-poverty neighborhoods, youth who identify as LGBTQIA+, youth who experience housing instability and homelessness, systems involved youth, and the intersections of these identities and lived experiences of youth populations. Members of the research team are here today to discuss these topics alongside two OST youth development professionals. This is the third episode in a three-part podcast series. The first episode discussed redefining the OST field and mapping access. And the second episode focused on programs and practices that foster dignity and belonging. Today's topic is professionalism and precarity of the workforce. I'll ask my colleagues to introduce themselves. Hi. I'm Bianca Baldridge. I'm an associate professor of education at Harvard University and a former youth worker. Hi, everyone. I'm Deepa Vasudevan. I'm a lecturer in education at Wellesley College. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarai Hertz Velasquez. I'm a student at Wellesley College, and I'm also a youth worker and a future teacher. Hello, hello. My name is Vanessa Roberts. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm the executive director of Project Voice in Denver, Colorado. Our acronym is Voices of Youth Creating Equity. Deepa, today's topic is really to delve into the field of youth work. Can you provide us with a, a succinct uh, definition of what it means to be a youth worker and who we're talking about when we use that term? Sure. So a youth worker is an educator, a mentor, or someone who cares for young people and supports their development. And I see it as an umbrella term and a catch-all for people who are working in a variety of community-based settings, um, whether that be in schools or after-school programs, out-of-school time. And it's a term that is not used as much, actually, in the U.S., but it's gained traction um, in cities in particular. But the reason why many of us like to use the term youth work is because it shifts us away from thinking about building relationships with young people beyond the idea of it just being a time-based thing, um, just out of school time or after school, and also shifts the relationship about just thinking about it in relationship to school as well. And so it centers the relationship between a professional educator and a young person. Thank you. Bianca, how can the OST field create professional environments in which marginalized practitioners feel welcomed and valued? Thanks, Ben. First, I just want to acknowledge that I think the deficit framing is really rampant in youth work, as you mentioned. And part of that is because 
communities have always uh, taken care of young people, in particular marginalized communities. And so I think with that, um, there's often a dismissal um, of youth workers, in particular, in their occupational experiences and livelihoods. And so I think part of that is not recognizing their knowledge and their expertise as educators, as care workers. And I think there's such a critical urgency uh, to not only study the experiences of youth workers um, to ensure that they are you know, professionally taken care of so that they have livable wages, they have benefits and healthcare, um, but also recognizing that they have amazing expertise, right, um, in working with young people in communities, and they always have. And so there's, I think there's just, uh, we, as a, as a field, we have to be mindful of um, not just supporting young people, but also supporting those who care for them. And I also just want to acknowledge, too, that, you know, the, the range of youth work experience uh, and thinking about the kinds of jobs and connections that youth workers have. So you have youth workers who might be on call 24-7 working with young people. Um, you have youth workers who uh, engage with young people, you know, before school, after school, during school, summers. Uh, again, thinking about just the level of expertise and knowledge base that they have has to be respected. And then the last piece that I'll say in thinking about the professional environments um, that could and should be created for marginalized practitioners, in our report, um, one of the things that kept coming up is the career ladders for youth workers, particularly youth workers who were Black and Indigenous, uh, Latinx, is that there there were ceilings, right? So you know, there are youth workers who reported sort of not being able to move to positions of power and positions of leadership um, within their organizations, in particular organizations that were run predominantly by um, by white people in the community. You know, I think it's important to provide professional opportunities, professional development opportunities, um, experiences where youth workers can um you know, receive the credentials that they might need in organizations, but not at a cost. A lot of the youth workers that we talked to were in our focus groups, but we also talked to program directors who talked about their early years as youth workers. And, you know, as Bianca mentioned, a lot of youth workers are people who come from the same backgrounds, racially, uh, culturally, um, as the young people that they work with. But at the same time, several of them talked about feeling tokenized by their own directors in doing the work, um, feeling like they had to be representative of a whole racial group in their experiences. Youth workers also talked about being student-facing, directly working with young people, oftentimes put them in a position in which they didn't have the seat at the table in leadership conversations. They didn't feel like they had the power to make decisions within the organization, but oftentimes felt like they had a more intimate and um, yeah, just a closer understanding of what young people were experiencing in the programs as well. And so there was that dissonance about feeling valued and feeling you know, legitimized in your role when you're doing the core work of out of school time programs. And at the same time, you know, feeling like you, you don't always have a voice around leadership decisions or funding decisions that are happening at the organization. So the additional contribution I'll offer is also considering what is the emotional labor of these workers that goes unnoticed? especially thinking about the multiple forms of trauma and what it means to absorb the stories, the experiences, the concerns, the worries, and oftentimes feeling unable to adequately address them as someone in an organization with limited resources or 
you know, the concerns of mission drift if you try to shift from educational programming to direct services support. So that can be incredibly frustrating and incredibly draining on youth workers in addition to navigating what Deepa and Bianca already named. So there is also a necessity, I feel, for caring for the mental health and well-being of youth workers from a holistic perspective in supporting them doing this work. That's so important, and I, I, I hope we continue to, to speak to that um, as we continue our conversation. I want to speak now to this issue of low wages and job instability that youth workers often experience, and they certainly reported in our study. Deepa, can you talk to us about the supports that are needed to address both of these issues in order to attract and retain skilled youth work practitioners? Sure. Thanks, Ben. Uh, So we know that youth workers and youth organizers, they're showing up in this work. They want to be in these out-of-school time programs. They want to work in them. And at the same time, um, there's oftentimes um, very low wages and job insecurity. Oftentimes, youth workers don't have um, healthcare or retirement benefits that allow them to stay in the field. And at the same time, they're drawn to these programs because of the sense of possibility for creativity, to work with young people um, in a different way um, related to education that's very different than than school day learning. There's lots of youth workers who um, are really passionate about the kind of work that they do with young people, but there's not enough respect or funding right now um, that is provided to uh, frontline youth workers. And so, you know, one of the most important solutions, I think, is really providing a living wage Uh, for youth workers in the field and supporting them. Um, And so oftentimes youth workers, they might be be paid less um, than people who are working in the fast food industry right now. They might be paid less than uh, lots of different forms of service industry. And so um, I think that there's some really exciting local campaigns that are happening around providing a livable wage for youth workers. Um, I know Kalamazoo um, Youth Development Network is doing some really important advocacy work uh, for youth workers um, to to make sure that there's um, a higher minimum wage for youth development professionals. I've noticed uh, some disagreement in the field at large um, or different perspectives on the issue of formal education and as a form of kind of credentialing or certification. And so to be very specific, can you share, you know, what you've seen from your research or or your professional experience around either the pros or cons of of linking professional trajectories to like a college degree or a community college degree or a master's degree? That's a really big tension um, and debate that's, you know, that has been ongoing in the field of youth work. Um, and oftentimes because I would say that community-based programs, youth programs, these are places that really draw on a diversity of knowledge. And so that means that we might have um, a a really impactful violence prevention program that is completely run by um, leaders who have experiences in the community that have nothing to do with a formal professional degree. So yeah, there's there's concerns that if we create one professional track, one type of professional degree for youth workers, um, we're actually going to lose out on um, all kinds of forms of knowledge that are not always valued in a university setting or in a college setting. And that it's also going to create this stratification and gentrification of the field, basically, right? Where we have white and um, upper 
upper middle class or wealthy people who are able to like rise up to leadership positions through more traditional professional degrees and, you know, master's programs. And then there's, um, you know, arguments for a baseline foundation for professional ethics and understanding of some of the, you know, really serious issues that we're you know, working with in youth programs, like understanding trauma, understanding systems and how they impact young people. You know, I think that this came up quite a bit, like this sort of tension around sort of how do we still um, inform and prepare youth workers, um, but also not push out youth workers who have really valuable community knowledge um, and cultural knowledge that is so important to young people's experiences. I mean, I think Deepa said it all, um, especially the piece about stratification and these hierarchies um, of knowledge. And I think the, and sometimes we have this this, this obsession with like formal education as though you uh, know everything, right, based on the form, the amount of formal degrees you have. And I think um, Deepa's point about violence prevention programs, for example, where you have youth workers who are deeply connected to neighborhoods and communities who know the communities, who know young people, um, and therefore have closer uh, relationships um, with young people based on the fact that they come from the same neighborhoods. I, I always say that some of the best youth workers I know did not have formal degrees, did not go to college. And at the same time, um, as, re- as was reflected in our research um, and then some of my own research, you know, I found that in particular Black youth workers will end up being told that they can't move to higher positions because they don't have a college degree or they don't have an advanced degree. And at the same time, they are denied those positions of leadership, but they are expected still to share their knowledge and expertise uh, and care for young people um, without without the benefits, without even being paid sometimes. And so they often feel as though they're being exploited um, for their knowledge um, without um, positions of leadership. Yeah. Thank you. I want to invite you into the conversation, Sarai, and ask how these findings align with your experience working in an after-school program. Yeah. Um, So just to give some context, my most recent after-school experience and and youth work experience took place at the Mission Hill after-school program, which is the largest and oldest student-run after-school program in Boston. And it's run through Harvard University's Philip Brooks House Association and led by Harvard and Wellesley undergraduates. Uh, So definitely falls in line with that narrative of of, uh, youth workers being, quote unquote, formally educated. And Mission Hill, after school program itself, um, works with students in grades K through 12 from the Mission Maine and Alice Taylor neighborhoods, which are located in Boston. Uh, And as far as thinking about how these findings connect to my experiences as a youth worker, I think I entered the youth work field, if you will, and viewed it as purely a part-time volunteer program, unaware of the potential of youth work as a future occupation. And in that, I want to name my positionality as a youth worker who was able to voluntarily enter the out-of-school time space and I had the privilege and resources to do so unpaid. Um, so my perspective as a, as a youth worker is limited in that. Um, but I definitely struggled with viewing my classmates, peers, fellow youth workers who I could see hadn't been really interrogating their own intentions working with youth. And I tried to 
for myself, at least constantly reassess my intention and my impact in the space. But I think having that, the tension between having folks there who really want to be there, um, but also paying people and perhaps attracting people for the wrong reasons is hard. And I will also say that a program like the one I worked with took place miles from all of our homes. So we were never part of the community aside from the couple of days of a week, week that we volunteered there. And I think that holding these institutions accountable that create out-of-school time programs, especially colleges and universities, which do that a lot, is important and thinking about how these the, the students and communities that we're entering are being affected by and impacted by our presence or lack thereof. Thank you. That's great. I appreciate you kind of putting that tension out there for us to think about. I, I want to suggest as well, this is a really... Uh, Wonderful conversation. And it's also, again, raising tensions that for which there's not an obvious resolution or answer. Um, but it could be helpful to think in terms of an ecosystem of youth work. And we're starting to bring up some of the variations there. So there's volunteer and there's paid, there's there's student, like college student youth workers, and then there's youth workers who for whom this is a form of employment and a really important part of livelihood that we're making an argument for. And I want to say something as a faculty member at a university, which is just to say, on one hand, I think it's really important that as that universities are contributing to the surrounding areas that they're part of and being a good neighbor and part of being a good neighbor might be ethical forms of, you know, service learning or, or volunteer opportunities for their students. Vanessa, we've had some terrific conversations about your perspectives on universities' involvement in the youth work space and, and kind of how universities can be value added as opposed to uh, kind of just create challenges. Do you mind speaking to that a little bit? Happy to. Thank you for that question, Ben. I feel really fortunate to have been educated as part of my graduate training in community-based research perspectives. And I will shout out, Ben was my professor for that. So just the the small world that we're in, Ben is in no small way really responsible for the career I fell into as the leader of a nonprofit organization. But I have really thought a lot about how do we shift the dynamic of exploitation and extraction coming from the university. The amount of requests I field as an executive director of a nonprofit that serves marginalized youth in Denver uh, we're a popular demographic, right? Like we we have folks that uh, researchers want contact with. They want stories. They want data. And I really try to frame it using my experience as a scholar, as a community-based researcher, to ask, what is the reciprocity here? And to really ask, why should we trust you? Why should we even take the risk and if the answer is, oh, you might contribute to the field or, oh, you might, you know, uh, benefit from your org being named in a publication, that's brilliant for you, right? But what is the actual impact immediately on the young folks or on my team that is going to be of benefit? But I wonder if that, you know, fine line between volunteerism, between passion motivated work is a part of the reason why youth work gets devalued. So this, this understanding that, oh, if you care about it, there's some sort of 
you know, um, emotional payoff or uh, social emotional payoff in terms of I get value from my work. There's a benefit to me mentally or physically or spiritually in some way. Therefore, it's all right if I get paid a poverty wage. It's all right if I am a salaried worker, but my normal work week is 60 to 70 hours. It's fine because my work is meaningful. So I wonder if that idea or that assumption that because the work is meaningful translates itself to we don't have to economically value it. I'm getting excited here, Vanessa, because that's a big part of my research is seeing how callings, you know, basically how the field relies on youth workers' passions. And then that become can become an exploitative relationship, right? And then it sort of ends up fueling the work is people who are going to stay in the work no matter what, at what cost. And then we see youth workers who are driving for Uber and Lyft and who maybe have three or four other jobs just to stay in youth work. And so it's it's almost like Oftentimes you're not seeing that, you know, within the program or within the organization, but it's deeply impacting people's livelihoods. But, you know, we also need to think about at what cost does this come when youth workers have to work three other jobs? What does it mean for us to to really rely on youth workers sort of love for the work as as that form of compensation? You're so right, Deepa. And I think the the other part of it is also looking at how many of those roles are part-time and come with no benefits. One of the first big moves, quote unquote, I made when I became executive director of Project Voice in 2019 was to go ahead and establish that part-time employees at Project Voice receive paid time off and sick time. Because why should you not have access to that type of benefit just as a part-time employee. I didn't know that I could set that policy. As soon as I found that out, I was like, okay, let's do this. This is one small move. And we also set our full-time work week starting at 30 hours a week so that if you work 30 hours a week, you can then access our medical dental vision benefits, which we also pay 90% of. Because it's one of those things where there shouldn't be an assumption, right, that you have to sacrifice all of these basic necessities in order to do work that's meaningful. It should be the opposite, if anything. I think, you know, we often assume youth organizations or nonprofit organizations are a lot more flexible than schools. They tend not to be in the same kind of bureaucracy, but we still get we still get embedded in our own routines and practices and organizational cultures that could be hard to change. So I appreciate hearing this example of internal development and change that you gave us. So this, this last question is for all of you. What advice do you have for funders, policymakers, and other decision makers to improve OSD programs for all youth and youth workers? Bianca, let's start with you. It's a big question, um, and I'll start with what funders can do. Um, something that came up repeatedly um, in our study was that funders often will give money that uh, is attached to all kinds of strings. And, uh, you know, organizations, youth workers found um, it, you know, really sometimes impossible to do what they actually wanted to do and to meet the needs of the young people that they are engaged with because of an overload of paperwork um, and, you know, measuring 
success in the ways that funders want them to measure success instead of sort of thinking about um, or having to measure success by their own mission and values and standards that they've set for themselves. And so, you know, I I think that uh, funders can really sort of help the situation by trusting, right, that communities and youth workers and organizations know what's best for their young people. Um, The other thing for funders, I would say, one of the things that I've been excited about in terms of our report and our study is that there are more and more conversations about the livelihoods of youth workers and the importance of taking care of them, right? Not just financially and professionally, but also thinking about mental health and emotional health. Um, And so, you know, I think a, a greater investment in the profession is really essential. Thank you. Sri, what advice do you have? the future of youth work? That is a really big question. Um, and I'd like to talk about a few of the points that Bianca made. Um, the first being the, the greater investment in the profession of youth work and how essential that is in determining what the future of youth workers look like. And I think that's true. I think people don't really know what youth workers even are and that that profession is something that's um, feasible, whether or not it's it's it, whether it's paid or volunteer, and I think also part of investing in this profession is looking at accountability, right, and asking like how can we create accountability in within youth workers that have a variety of different backgrounds and come from all walks of life, and I also think that another solution or a step in the right direction is acknowledging that youth workers don't exist in silos, right? So situating youth work within a larger historical context of radical community-based education um, within minoritized communities. Thank you for framing some of those issues. Deepa, can you share your thoughts on, on way, you know, key, key advice you want to share at this stage? Yeah, I think that this is um, maybe at the heart of all of our recommendations is really about investing in people who are working in these programs. Um, And oftentimes um, foundation money is going to programming and project ideas and to the latest, you know, theory or buzzword that's circulating in education. And those can be great things to inform the field and the profession. But if we know from all the research that Uh, the relationships between young people and youth workers are what make these programs impactful. We really do need to have funds that are for people working in the field. And then I also think that um, a big recommendation that came out from the voices of youth workers, executive directors, and youth work scholars from our research was really about rethinking funding so that it's more of a collegial process with different programs collaborating to, you know, to work towards a grant and really sort of rethinking sort of how that funding happens so that it's not always a competition. And, you know, I don't want to be too redundant with other people's suggestions, but, you know, I I really do think it comes back to this idea of, of trusting and investing in youth workers. And that also goes around the types of professional development that's funded as well. Something that was really beautiful that came up in the different focus groups Um, that we were organizing is that, you know, youth workers and youth organizers were so excited to be in community with one another and to talk about their challenges, to talk about, you know, the creative solutions that they were finding. And so if there's ways that 
um, funders can invest in those networks, in those communities of practice that center uh, practitioners' experiences and ideas. Like I think that that is incredibly valuable. Wonderful. Vanessa, can you share your thoughts on, on where you want to see the, the field moving? So this question of where is the field moving, what advice you know, might I give? I live in this really interesting space where I wear a lot of hats, having come from academia to joining Project Voice as a graduate student research assistant and designing curriculum and facilitating program and being in that pro programming space and then getting called to leadership, rejecting that call and getting called stronger and saying yes. There's a lot of things I have learned recently and one of the things that really came up during the pandemic was the way in which money doesn't have to move in such complicated ways. I'll say it again. What nonprofits learned during the pandemic was that a lot of these rules, limitations, and restrictions that philanthropy, philanthropists, donors set out were entirely constructed and entirely dissolvable in the light of a global crisis and a pandemic. All of a sudden, there were these light bulbs going off for myself and my peers, especially my fellow executive directors of color, which was, hold up, wait a minute. Why all of a sudden now can things move so quickly? And that's something I would ask funders. I would ask uh, board of trustees. I would ask individual ph philanthropists to consider if during this pandemic, the significance of our work, the significance of out-of-school time programming and the workers who make that possible was revealed or highlighted or made extremely evident in such a way that it moved you to invest in trust-based ways, why not maintain that momentum? Just a question. If all of a sudden in crisis you trusted us, why not continue to trust us to do the work we need to do? Wow. This has been a, a really terrific uh, conversation in general and a powerful closing from each of you. I appreciate how provocative and, and um, generative you're being around these ideas for how we think about how the field moves forward. I'm impressed by um, the ideas that you're sharing. So Vanessa, Sarai, Deepa, Bianca, thank you so much for participating in this conversation and again, sharing some of these really pressing issues around youth work and uh, also your ideas for how we kind of improve this broader ecosystem or field that creates conditions for youth workers and youth organizations and young people themselves to thrive. Thank you. Mm -hmm.